Hello, and welcome to the History of Rome. Appendix 2, Episode 1, Conquest and Peace. So welcome to Appendix 2 of the History of Rome, the Iberian Wars. Now, if you purchased Appendix 1 of the History of Rome, the one on the ancient sources back when it was first available, you know that I labeled each of those episodes, Appendix 1, Appendix 2, Appendix 3, etc., but now that I've got a bunch of new episodes, I regret having done it like that. So I have now changed the structure of how I name these appendices. All of the Ancient Sources episodes are now Appendix 1, and all of these episodes on the Iberian Wars are Appendix 2. Now, if you've just now purchased Appendix 1, then you are blissfully unaware of all that, and probably wondering why I'm wasting valuable history time talking about such matters of housekeeping. Anyway, here we are at Appendix 2, Episode 1. So moving on, if you listen to Appendix 1 on the Ancient Sources, you know that I wrote that from research material I had compiled while working on The Storm Before the Storm, but which had no place in The Storm Before the Storm. The same is true for Appendix 2. What follows comes from the fairly intensive work I did studying the post-Second Punic War Roman Republic, but material that only showed up in the highly compressed prologue and periphery of the first few chapters. The Iberian Wars of the 2nd century BC were important at the beginning of the beginning of the end of the Roman Republic, as they provided those demoralizing quagmires that led to unpopular rounds of conscription and soldiers returning from long and demoralizing tours of duty to find their property ruined. All of this played into the rise of Tiberius Gracchus and the Lex Agraria. But by that point, the Romans were at the very end of these demoralizing tours of duty. So everything that preceded it was not really critical to the story I was trying to tell about the Gracchi and Marius and Sulla. Cuts had to be made. This left practically everything that happened on the Iberian Peninsula during the 50 years after the end of the Second Punic War compressed into a few summary paragraphs of the prologue. But there is another reason we are here talking about these Iberian Wars, more directly related to the History of Rome podcast, of which these stories are now officially an appendix to. I was still in the relatively early days of the history of Rome when this time period arrived, and I moved pretty swiftly from the Second Punic War to the Third Punic War to the Gracchi brothers. We talked about Roman expansion into Greece, but just kind of left Hispania in the dust. When I finished the history of Rome and looked back, the Iberian Wars were a rather glaring omission from the narrative, and something that I long hoped to come back to. And here we are. So over the course of the next five episodes, we will focus on correcting this glaring omission. Now, I'm sure the Romans themselves were not too put out by me not talking about their operations in Hispania, because frankly, it does not portray the Romans at their best. And if you were so inclined to go grab historical examples of the Romans being duplicitous imperial monsters, there are lots of good examples to work with here. Now, the Romans were not always duplicitous imperial monsters, but in Hispania, they very often were. So this is not going to be a pretty story, as we will soon see. And just a note on nomenclature before we get started, I'll be doing my very best to talk about Iberia and Hispania, using those two terms somewhat interchangeably to cover the whole of the Iberian Peninsula, which of course includes both modern Spain and Portugal. A lot of the time, the original Greek and Latin source material has these events translated as the Spanish Wars, in which the Romans fought against the Spaniards, and it kind of drives my Portuguese friends to ruin. So I'm hoping to not fall into that trap here. 
though I will be referring in English to the provinces of Nearer Spain and Further Spain. Okay, let's get to it. In the prologue of The Storm Before the Storm, I talked about how, after the Second Punic War, the Roman Senate had a pretty big choice to make. The legions were now planted in Iberia, North Africa, and Greece, and had they wanted to, the Senate could have annexed the whole of the Western Mediterranean right then and there. But they chose not to. Instead, they let Carthage continue to govern itself, only bounded by a few treaty obligations to Rome. The Greeks would host no permanent Roman garrison, and even King Philip of Macedon was allowed to go on his merry way as long as he confined himself to the boundaries of his own kingdom. It was only when King Philip did not confine himself to the boundaries of his own kingdom that the Romans came back over the Adriatic and beat him at the Battle of Sinocephaly. And even then, the Roman victory resulted only in the Greeks being told that they were now free of all foreign domination. King Philip even retained his crown and sovereignty, and, now suitably chastised, agreed to confine himself to the boundaries of his own kingdom. This is how things went in Greece and North Africa for the next 50 years. The Senate's fundamental uneasiness about forging an overseas empire led them to pass up multiple opportunities to conquer and rule directly, and it was almost out of exasperation that they finally embraced their imperial destiny and in 146 BC ordered the sack of Corinth and Carthage and the annexation of a chunk of North Africa Greece, and Macedonia. Okay, now everything I just said about the Senate's uneasiness about forging an overseas empire, none of it applied to Hispania. After Scipio Africanus expelled the Carthaginians at the end of the Second Punic War, the Romans never left the Iberian Peninsula. Hispania became the first mainland territory outside of Italy, so excepting Sardinia and Sicily, that the Romans permanently annexed. So, why? Why the difference? Why did they put down a permanent ruling presence in Iberia, but not in Greece and North Africa? There are two big reasons. The first is that they simply did not consider the native tribes of Hispania to be civilized in any meaningful sense. If you want a modern analogy, you can look to the European treatment of the indigenous populations of the Americas. That is a pretty serviceable analogy complete with treaties signed and broken repeatedly, unprovoked attacks, purposeful hostility, theft of land and resources, abuses of the native population. The second reason also tracks pretty well with this European-American analogy. There was a lot of silver on the Iberian Peninsula. A lot. When I talk about the flood of wealth coming into Rome in the 2nd century BC, a flood of wealth that contributed to the growing economic inequality that led to a populist backlash, much of it was coming from the Iberian Peninsula. Livy provides plenty of itemized reports about what was displayed in various triumphs, and in the first years of the Roman presence in Hispania, one general came back with 12,000 pounds of Oscan silver and 17,000 silver denarii, another came back with 278,000 pounds of Oscan silver and 73,000 silver denarii. Once the Senate realized just how much precious metal the region held, they wanted to move from taking it as spoils to moving directly to the exploitation of the mines, which is what they did. Now, the story of the Roman conquest of Hispania really begins in 205 BC. One of the last things Scipio Africanus did before departing Hispania to go finish the war against Hannibal was to establish a permanent veterans colony in the southwest of the peninsula. He called it Italica. 
Italica would go on to become a thriving Roman community, the future birthplace of the emperors Trajan and Hadrian, and the city would not really be abandoned until well after the fall of the Western Roman Empire some 700 years later. But for the moment, it was just a settlement of Scipio's veterans. And this was not really opposed by the locals, because at this point the Romans were pretty popular in Iberia. Since they had come to fight and expel the Carthaginians, the Romans found lots of friendly support among the native tribes. But as the next few years passed and more Romans showed up and the military garrisons did not leave, it started to look a lot like the Romans had not come to expel the Carthaginians so much as replace them. So between 205 and 197 BC, there were rebellious flare-ups, tribes that had been friendly with Rome suddenly saying, look, you were supposed to be our allies, not our overlords, to which the Romans would respond by acting like their overlords. The legions would march out, bring some rebellious tribe to heel, and then impose a one-sided treaty that made it pretty clear that the Romans did indeed consider themselves overlords, not allies. The tribes would have to pay a fine, hand over hostages, usually the children of leaders, and also provide auxiliary units for the local legions to make sure that the various warriors were kept under the Roman chain of command. These rebellious flare-ups combined into a massive explosion in 197 BC. The tribes of Hispania were plugged into the communications networks that circulated through the Mediterranean, and in 197, almost everyone in the Mediterranean knew that the Roman Senate had just declared war on King Philip of Macedon, marking the beginning of what we call the Second Macedonian War. What this meant for the natives of Hispania was that the Romans would be massively distracted in the east, so a huge uprising in the west might be too much for the Romans to deal with. So the local tribes of nearer Spain banded together and launched a coordinated uprising against the Romans. And it really was too much for the existing Roman government to handle. They could not spare any of their existing high magistrates. So for the first time, the Senate expanded the College of Praetors from four to six. Starting in 197, two praetors would be sent to Hispania each year, beginning the division of the peninsula into two separate provinces, what we call in English Nearer Spain and Further Spain, the dividing line between the two being roughly modern Cartagena. Though I don't know if they fully realized it at the time, these new Praetorian provinces would become permanent fixtures of the Roman imperial administration, and so the founding date of these two provinces of Nearer and Further Spain is generally marked at 197 BC. But even the arrival of these two new praetors was not sufficient and the rebellion that began in 197 was still ongoing two years later. By then, Macedonia and Greece were mostly pacified, so in 195, the Senate dispatched a consul to Hispania for the first time. That consul was the newly elected Marcus Porcius Cato, known to history as Cato the Elder. Now, Cato the Elder got his own special episode in Appendix 1 because, remember, in addition to his other accomplishments, he wrote the first History of Rome in Latin. But that was still in the future. At this point, Cato was still an ambitious novus homo on the make, who already had a reputation for being a highly charged mix of intense austerity, energetic moralizing, and piercing resolve. Cato suffered no fools, he did not want to hear your complaining, and he was an avowed enemy of greedy corruption. This made Cato simultaneously brutal, but also pretty trustworthy. 
Upon arrival in nearer Spain, he and his men found themselves badly outnumbered by a combined native army that was perhaps 40,000 strong. So the first thing Cato did was order the ships that had deposited him and his men in nearer Spain to sail away. The only way out of this would be victory. His men now had a very simple choice. Win and live, or lose and die. The next thing he did was forbid the Publicani contractors from supplying his army with grain. Cato said that what they needed, they would seize from the enemy. And this is the moment that he laid down his infamous maxim, the war feeds itself. Cato extended this brutal logic to potential allies. Neighboring tribes who had thus far remained neutral in the conflict offered to throw their weight behind the Romans for a price. Cato agreed to pay one of these tribes the outrageous sum of 200 talents of silver. His officer said, that's crazy, don't do it. But Cato said, look, if we win, we'll be able to pay it back easily. And if we don't win, then we'll all be dead and it won't matter. As for the tribes that had remained loyal to the Romans, Cato was in a tricky spot. Envoys from one such allied city came to beg for assistance. They were besieged by the rebels and told Cato if he didn't send at least 3,000 men that they would be forced to surrender and then join the rebellion. But Cato did not have 3,000 men to spare without leaving his own camps at risk, so he settled on a psychological gambit. He told the envoys he would indeed send a relief army, and then he ordered his men to get ready, make food for the road, get packed, load the boats for the journey. This flurry of activity convinced the envoys that the Romans really were coming, and then they raced home and spread the word among both friend and foe alike that the legions were on the way. This devastated the morale of the besiegers and boosted the morale of the besieged. So, the besiegers called off the siege. None of them knew that as soon as the envoys departed from Cato's camp, that Cato told his men to stop preparing to leave. He never intended any of them to go anywhere. Instead, Cato focused on massing his troops for battle against the main rebel army that was gathering near the city of Emporii. And though he was a stern leader, when it actually came time to fight, Cato turned into like a super pumped-up motivational speaker and was all encouragement, we can do this, you can do it, I believe in you, let's go get them. Cato's leadership thus produced a potent mixture of fear and confidence that made the legions deadly against an enemy that vastly outnumbered them. When the battle began, Cato himself remained perched on some high ground with three reserve cohorts. When he saw that the center of his line was failing, Cato personally led these reinforcements down to hold that part of the line, and this kind of personal bravery always goes over well with the common soldiers. The result of this battle was total victory for the Romans, and in dividing up the booty, Cato further endeared himself to his men by taking only a small amount of the spoils for himself and dividing the rest up equally amongst his men. According to Plutarch, Cato said, not that I find fault with those who seek to profit by such a case, but I prefer to strive in bravery with the bravest rather than in wealth with the richest and in greed for money with the greediest. Now willing to follow Cato anywhere, the legions fanned out and marched up the Abro River, securing and pacifying everything they came into contact with. With the Romans showing a determined ascendancy that could not be easily shaken off, the local tribes decided it was high time to cut a deal so they sent envoys looking for a peace. Cato, of course, demanded hostages to ensure good faith, but then he employed another psychological gambit. 
he calculated how long it would take to deliver a message to each of the various rebellious cities. Then he sent letters marked to be opened on the same day. When the leaders of these various cities opened their letters on that appointed date, they all read the same thing. You have one day to dismantle your walls and fortifications, or when I show up, I will defeat you and sell you all into slavery. The 24-hour deadline meant that there was no time to find out if they were the only city who had gotten the letter, like they had been singled out or something, or if everyone had gotten the same letter. And they certainly did not have time to confer with their neighbors and consider a unified resistance. Everyone had to scramble for their own self-interested preservation, and so every one of these cities independently tore down their walls. And so it was later said that Cato subdued the entire length of the Abro River with one victory and one letter. Cato wrapped up his service in Nearer Spain in 194, and then came home to celebrate a triumph. Most importantly, he left the natives of Nearer Spain with the firm understanding that the Romans would not be going anywhere. The decade after Cato's campaign was pretty quiet. The Senate continued to annually send two praetors to nearer and further Spain, and though these guys would campaign against this or that tribe and receive the occasional triumph for their efforts, there wasn't really anything on the scope of what Cato had faced until 182 BC, when the Celtiberians of nearer Spain launched another coordinated uprising. And this uprising got so big that it even got a name, the First Celtiberian War. The important thing to note here, though, is that the rebellious Celtiberians were not necessarily looking to expel the Romans. They were just looking for a more just and equitable settlement that would allow them to live a prosperous life. A few tribes seemed to have all the land, while others had no land at all, and naturally the ones who had no land found this intolerable, particularly the Lusone tribe, a subset of the Celtiberians who lived along the Abro River. In 182, Frantic dispatches reached Rome from nearer Spain that an army fully 35,000 strong was now up in arms. So in 181, the Senate dispatched praetor Quintus Fulvius Flaccus, who would spend the next two years successfully campaigning against the Celtiberians. But like Cato, when he arrived, he was outnumbered and he had to scramble for local auxiliaries to shore up his ranks. The Celtiberian rebels were eager for a fight with Flaccus while he remained outnumbered, and they hoped that a single decisive victory would be enough to bring the conflict to an end on satisfactory terms. But Flaccus used that eagerness against them. For four days in a row, the Celtiberian army lined up offering battle. But each day, Flaccus refused to bring his own troops out of camp. Then on the fourth night, Flaccus dispatched about 3,000 men to sneak around behind the back of the Celtiberian camp. The next morning, it was Flaccus who came out and offered battle. Finally getting the fight they wanted, the Celtiberians rushed out into the field, so fast that they left their camps hardly defended and their rear guarded not at all. Once Flaccus engaged with the front of the Celtiberian army, the secret detachment he had sent out the night before sacked the Celtiberian camp and then fell on the rear of their army. This surprise attack from behind broke the Celtiberians, and according to Appian, upwards of 20,000 men were killed or captured which is not exactly what the Celtiberians had been hoping for. Flaccus followed up on this victory a short while later with another victory, this one aided by the weather. He approached the still-rebellious city of Contrabia and forced them to surrender just as torrential rains were beginning to fall. 
these torrential rains caused the region to flood, and so Flaccus brought his whole army inside the city. When the rain ceased and the floodwaters cleared, a Celtiberian relief force arrived to help their brothers in Contrebia, and seeing no Romans anywhere, assumed that the enemy had fled. So they approached the gate with their guard down, and when they asked to be let in, they were greeted by the cream of the Roman legions pouring out in a massive wave that overran them all. When the spring of 180 arrived, Flaccus's replacement was on the way, but Flaccus went out for one more campaign. Just a few days into this campaign, however, the new praetor landed in the province and requested Flaccus bring his troops back so that they could assess Roman strength, send home the veterans, and merge new recruits into the army. When Flaccus obeyed this order and turned around, the local Celtiberians assumed that he was running scared, and so they decided to trap him and his legions in a narrow valley. Flaccus and his men were forced into a defensive crouch, and it was only after a full day's fighting that they were able to extract themselves from this valley. But when they did, Flaccus congratulated his men, saying that the enemy had been on the verge of getting away scot-free, but had instead delivered themselves up for one more Roman victory. Flaccus then returned home with the veterans who had completed their tours of duty and celebrated a triumph. He threw some lavish games with the spoils he returned with, and was elected consul later that same year. But Flaccus's victories did not end the First Celtiberian War. Credit for ending the First Celtiberian War would go to the praetor sent to nearer Spain in 179 BC. That praetor was none other than Tiberius Gracchus the Elder. Though now massively overshadowed by his more famous sons, Gracchus the Elder was at this moment on his way to becoming one of the three or five most influential men of his generation. He was already married to Cornelia Africana, the daughter of the great Scipio Africanus. He would serve multiple consulships. He was awarded multiple triumphs. He had alliances with the most powerful families in Rome. He had alliances with the most powerful families in the Mediterranean. But this here was his first shot at an independent command, and he performed spectacularly because Gracchus the Elder would not just win the war, he would win the peace. To win the war, he fanned out and started capturing city after city. And it was in fact later reported that during this year on campaign, Gracchus captured 150 cities, though it was also wryly noted that Gracchus had a tendency to exaggerate, and any time he came across anything more than like three huts in a clearing, he would call it a city. But when he captured one such city, a real city, mind you, he had the good fortune to find among its inhabitants two sons and a daughter of one of the most influential Celtiberian leaders, a guy named Thurus. When Thurus got the news that his children had fallen into Roman hands, he came down to the Roman camp and offered a permanent pledge of friendship and loyalty if Gracchus let his children go. Gracchus did, and the peace was confirmed. The war now basically won. The time had come to win the peace, and Gracchus did. Positioning himself as a just and honest broker, Gracchus surveyed the lands of nearer Spain and made sure that every tribe had enough land and resources upon which to build their lives, and included in Appian's account of the war, Gracchus, quote, divided land among the poor, which some have taken as a possible anecdotal precursor to his sons importing that very same idea into Italy a generation later. After signing treaties of mutual aid and friendship with the local tribes and gathering up the requisite hostages to secure everyone's good faith, Gracchus got them to agree to build no new walls or fortifications, 
to save future Celtiberian leaders from making the mistake of trying to tangle with the Romans again. All of this was done by the end of 178 BC, and Gracchus returned home to celebrate the first of what would be two triumphs in his career. The peace treaties he brokered lasted for nearly 25 years, and the name Tiberius Gracchus was celebrated in both Rome and Hispania as the name of a man who had secured a just and equitable peace for everyone. But though Tiberius Gracchus the Elder did secure the peace for a generation, this would not be merely episode one of five if the peace was permanent. Next time, an attempt in both nearer and further Spain to expel the Romans would lead to vengeful Roman atrocities, atrocities that would ensure that no peace would be forthcoming this time around, and instead, Rome would find itself engaged in fully 25 years of never-ending war in Hispania. <laughs>